Now we have in chapter 11 the final conquest of Canaan, and this brings the campaign actually into the north. And this is the conclusion of the leadership of Joshua in war. Will you notice it came to pass when Jabin king of Hazor had heard those things that he sent to Jobab king of Madon and to the king of Shimron and to the king Akshaph. And you'll notice this man Jabin up in Hazor in the north seems to have been the leader. And now he sends out word to all of the folk in that area that they come together and that they come against Joshua because it's obvious now that he has overcome in the south that he is going to move toward the north. And if he moves toward the north, well, he'd come into their land. And, of course, that's exactly what he did. As we saw, his tactic, his strategy was to split the land right in two. He drove a wedge into it. Then he moved into the south and conquered that area. They couldn't get help, you see, from the north, but now all the northern kings come together, and he moves into that area. And we're told in verse 7 now, and I'll just hit high points, so Joshua came and all the people of war with him against them by the waters of Merom suddenly, and they fell upon them. It was by this sudden attack. Now, the strategy of Joshua was well to be followed. He divided the land. That's a strategy that's been used in war. And then to come suddenly upon the enemy. You find out that Alexander the Great did that later on. Napoleon used it. And it was Nathan Bedford Forrest of Tennessee that said, the one who gets there the firstest with the mostest is the one that'll win. And that's the way that Joshua's moving now. Now we read in verse 18, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Now in the north, he was not so successful because it was a long, bitter campaign. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all other they took in battle. Also, There is a verse that concludes the chapter today that we have studied, that is chapter 11. Let me read now Joshua 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance under Israel according to their divisions by their tribes, and the land rested from war. Now, this verse says that after the warfare that he conducted to take over the land, that he took all of it. But when we come to chapter 13, verse 1, we read this. Now Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years, and there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. Is that a contradiction in the Bible? There are those that like to find contradictions in the Bible. Here's one they miss. Looks like a contradiction, doesn't it? One place, it says that Joshua 
took the whole land. And then it says here that there remaineth yet much land to be possessed. May I say to you that though this may seem to be a contradiction, it happens to contain one of the greatest spiritual truths for Christians today. Now, actually, Israel never did exterminate all enemies in that land. They were plagued with them from then on. Even up to the time of David, you'll recall that the Philistines, they were in the land because we're told that Joshua had taken Gaza, that was one of the cities, the Philistines, and he didn't get rid of them. And there were others that were left in that land, a plague to them during that entire period of their entire history. What does it mean then when it says that he took the whole land? Well, it means exactly that. He got a victory over Gaza. He got a victory over other sections of the land, that city of Hazor. And by the way, they are excavating it today. A great deal has been made of that excavation. And it was revealed that Joshua really destroyed that city. But those people, many of them remained in the land. And the children of Israel didn't possess all of it. Now, there's a difference between the fact they took the whole land and Joshua gave it to them, but they just didn't move in and possess all of it. And there's a difference between being given something and then possessing something. You can give a person a gift and the person not use it at all. They really never possess it at all. I heard of a man years ago when I was in Texas. He gave his little son a pony for Christmas. The pony was the boy's. He never did ride it. Never did. You know why? Afraid. Little fellow was afraid. He died on him one time and the pony bucked him. And little fellow's not about to get back on that pony. Never did ride him. But it's his pony. But he never did possess it. Now, did you know that there are a great many Christians that are just like that? God has given them great spiritual blessings. But they've never really possessed them. We've been told, definitely. Paul, you know, writing to the Ephesians, he said to them that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. We're blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. Now, you can go through the Bible and enumerate many of them. Dr. Schaefer and his theology is listed, I think, it's about 33. It's been a long time since I studied all of those, but there were about, I think, 33. And I don't think really that he covered all of them. I think there are many other spiritual blessings, and they've been all made over to you. They've been given to you. But how many of them have you possessed? How many of these spiritual blessings are yours? that you enjoy them today. Let me just mention two or three that Paul mentions over in the fifth chapter of Romans. He says there that you and I, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Do you enjoy that peace with God, that everything's all right between you and God? 
You have that wonderful personal relationship when every day, sometime during the day, you can look up and say to him, Lord Jesus, I love you. You have that kind of relationship. How about joy? That's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, and it's yours. You have joy in your life. There are a lot of sad Christians. I have the privilege of speaking today in many places. And one of the things I've noted, and I've talked to other men who have the privilege of standing before large audiences, and if they've noticed it, how many unhappy-looking Christians there are. I was telling somebody the other day, I spoke right here in Los Angeles in a church, and there was a girl sitting out in that auditorium, the most unhappy girl that I've ever seen. That is, the looks of her. So much so that I mentioned it to the pastor. And he's a Christian. Teaches a Sunday school class. This is a termite for the Lord. But she's had a very unfortunate and unhappy love affair. Things haven't gone right in her home. She doesn't have the joy of the Lord at all. But it's hers. She just hasn't possessed it yet. And how about love? How many of us really have it in our hearts? We hear so much about it, but do we really have it in our hearts? How many of you today are appropriating all these spiritual blessings? You know, Paul did. I think Paul is one of the few that has done that. He says, I have finished my course. What he means is, I like to use that for golf. I say that Paul played golf. He says, I finished my course. He played all 18 holes, and he made par on every one of them. That's Paul for you. He touched all the bases that he was supposed to in this life. And he enjoyed life. And yet, my, he had hardships. By the way, Christian, are you having a good time as a Christian? Are you really laying hold of these blessings? Well, Israel never did appropriate. They never did possess their possessions. And I think you can say that of the church today. I think the church is just as much a failure in the spiritual realm as Israel was in the physical realm. And there are many blessings today that you and I are missing. Oh, Christian friend, what a message there is here. This is no contradiction in the Scripture. The contradiction is in the lives of professing Christians in the church today. Now, we had in chapter 12, and I'm not going into detail there, the roster of the kings of Canaan. And you go down the list, and very candidly, this to me is not exciting. And I can't find, actually, too much here of any spiritual import. Now, I know that's a very frank confession to make, but a chapter like this, the thing that it impresses upon me is the detail that the God of this universe has given to items like this. Very candidly, you would think that he'd constantly be dealing in grandiose terms with great issues. But you see, God gets right down to the nitty-gritty, right where you and I live. We sometimes hesitate to take to God in prayer so many of the details of our lives. 
we think, well, we ought not to talk to him about that. Well, friends, talk to him about it, because it's very important to take these, and he wants to hear them. Notice how a chapter like this, to me, is very uninteresting. But I want to say this to you. It's not uninteresting to the God of this universe. He made a record of all of these kings that surrendered to Joshua and of the way that they took that land. You see, God is interested in the details of your life. I had a liberal professor many years ago. He says, you take the Bible literally, and I said, yes. And he said, do you believe that God's got books up there that he's going to open someday and books to look at? You don't believe that, do you? You know, I think I shocked him. I said, I sure do. I think he's got books, friends. And here's a book, and here's a chapter, all about these kings. I never heard of them. I know nothing about them. God does. He's recorded it. And I'm of the opinion that up there, you're in a book. Hope mine is not in the book of works. I want to be in the Lamb's book of life, by the way. That's the book to be in. But my friend, whoever you are, your name's written down up there. And it may be in the book of the Lamb's book of life. You'll get in there by the new birth, by trusting Christ. And you don't get in there by your effort. There's a book of works. And he'll record your works, all the details of it, everything you've ever done. But I want to say this. When some of us get up there and find out that about all we did give was a cup of cold water that cost us nothing, it's going to be embarrassing indeed. It's all written down. And this chapter here, I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to read a verse in it. I'm just going to pass over it, friends. But it has a message, does it not, to us today. It's very meaningful to God and your life and my life. Now, my life may not be very meaningful to you, and your life may not be very meaningful to me. I share a great many personal experiences because that's the only way that I know to convey truth, because if it doesn't, you know, work down here in the hopper of our lives, it's just no good when it moves out yonder. It just becomes theory, and I use that. And a dear brother, retired preacher, he's got plenty of time on his hands, and he wrote me about a 12-page letter. He'd had a similar experience. Now, they gave me the letter, and if you want to know the truth, I read it. And I thought, well, actually, to me, it was quite meaningless. Places I never heard of, people I never knew, experience that he'd had, and a church he served that I never heard of. But, you know, the interesting thing was... God knows about it, and that is written down, that's interesting to God. May I say to you, it adds a great deal to the dimension of this life that you and I are living today. Now we come to the 13th chapter of the book of Joshua. I read this verse last time, and let me read it again, the first verse of Joshua 13. Now Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years, and there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. Tremendous truth in that verse, by the way. To begin with, we're just at the 13th chapter of the book of Joshua, and there are 24 chapters, and here he is already an old man. 
and he's already stricken in years. And he's not going to be able to lead the children of Israel much longer. In fact, the wars are over. Joshua led them in, and he was the leader that God used to take the land. But the interesting thing is here that I didn't realize so much time had elapsed. He was 80 years old when God called him. Now he's about 120 years old, and that means that he's had 40 years. And my, how time got by, much faster than it did when they were in the wilderness. You see, in the wilderness, it was long drawn out. And I'm of the opinion that many of you that listen just thought we never would get through that dry and desolate, and as Moses called it, a terrible wilderness. And I think Moses knew a great deal about that wilderness. He not only spent 40 years in it, but the 40 years before he'd been out in the desert of Midian on the backside of the desert. He knew a great deal about it. He called it a terrible wilderness. But now they're in the land of milk and honey, and they're laying hold of these great possessions. And the time really passes fast. And one of the things that causes time to hang heavy on the hands of so many folk is that if they just only be doing something for God, only be living a life for Him, my high time passes then. And then when you begin to get older, I've noticed how time passes. I recall my last pastorate. I was busy. I began as really a young man. And 21 years went by before I knew it. They just slipped by. And all of a sudden, I discover I'm an old man <laughs> and that I now am ready to retire myself. My, how time got by. They've been thrilling years, and very frankly, the most thrilling part of my ministry has taken place since I've retired in this ministry of radio and in having conferences. I've seen more results. I've seen more of the hand of God. I'm more conscious of His leading than any time in my life. I think Joshua would have said that. Now, Joshua was old and stricken in years. And the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years. The Lord told him he was old. And there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. Now, this is the important part of it. I thought they were doing very well. They went into the land. We saw drove a wedge right into the center of the land. Then they went to the south, conquered that area, moved to the north. They've conquered that area. And I thought, my, they've done a fine job. But you notice, there's very much land yet to be possessed. After doing a tremendous job, may I say, friends, that's going to be true of you and me. It's been true of every servant of God. He never did all that he'd like to do. You remember what Paul said in Philippians? He says in Philippians, the third chapter, verse 12, "...not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect." And that means full-grown, reaching the age of maturation, full maturation. Paul could say, "...I have not yet attained, but I follow after." if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Paul said, he called me to do a certain thing, and I want to do that. God said to Joshua, the whole land is there. Every place the sole of your foot shall tread upon, I've given you that. 
but they didn't walk on all of it. And friends, you and I never will in this life be able to possess all of our spiritual possessions. Now, I meet a few saints today, and thank the Lord, they're just a few like this. They give me the impression they have arrived, that there's nothing more for them to know, there's nothing more for them to do. They're very much satisfied with their lives, and they have no desire to press on to the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, the children of Israel, even after all of this period of 40 years conquering that land, it still can be said there's very much land to be possessed. And you and I will never reach the place where we have fully arrived. That is the wonder, I think, and the glory of going to heaven someday, because there you and I are going to be able to reach our goal, there's where we really are going to reach the place where we should be today. Paul never did in this life, and if Paul never did, I'm confident I never will. Now he's told here in chapter 13, and I should call your attention now, we've come to another major division of the book. The land is divided now. Although they haven't got it all, as we've said before, They were given 300,000 square miles. They only possessed, even in their heyday, 30,000 square miles. Now, we find here in chapters 13 through 21, the land is divided. And we find that actually the command of Joshua is terminated. That is, no longer General Joshua. He's now called upon to divide the land. And we find here in chapter 13 that the thing that he's called upon especially to do is to make sure that these two and a half tribes are confirmed in what Moses had promised to them. And that's very important to see. He says, "...now therefore divide this land for an inheritance unto the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh, with whom the Reubenites and the Gadites have received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond Jordan, eastward, even as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Now, they were to be given this on the other side, Jordan. Moses had promised it to them, and now they are to receive it. The Reubenites and the Gadites. Now, the half-tribe of Manasseh, half of that tribe was over on the other side of the Jordan River. And that now is to be confirmed to them. Now we come to one of the most remarkable chapters that's in the Bible. I think it's chapter 14 of Joshua. Caleb is given Hebron. This man, Caleb, is a remarkable man. Personally, I think he's just as remarkable as Joshua is. And I want you to get acquainted with him here in the 14th chapter. Now, will you notice, and I'm reading, "...and these are the countries which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed for inheritance to them. By lot was their inheritance, as the Lord commanded, by the hand of Moses, for the nine tribes and for the half-tribe." 
Now, I have put in the notes on Joshua a map that shows the position of the twelve tribes. We find that Gad and Reuben are on the east bank, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. Then you have, beginning way down in the south, Simeon and Judah and Benjamin and Dan and Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, Naphtali, Asher, and Dan way up north, all the way from Dan down to Beersheba. The land is divided with the tribes. Now, we're going to have something to say about that later on. But notice now, verse 5 of chapter 14 of Joshua, "...as the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did, and they divided the land." This was the way it was, and we'll see that as we move along. "...then the children of Judah came unto Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee in Kadesh Barnea. Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to espy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in mine heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. Now, here's a man, friends, who wholly followed the Lord, my God. Now, you want a recipe today for long life and a good life? Well, here it is. Here is a man who wholly followed the Lord, my God, he says. Now, listen to him. Verse 10, And now, behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. As yet, I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war both to go out and to come in. Now, here's this man. He is now 85 years old, and he's getting up in years. And yet, he says, I am as strong this day as I was the day that Moses sent me into this land. Now, that means that he spent 40 years in that wilderness, and during that 40 years, everyone else of the children of Israel died. That generation that came out of the land of Egypt. Every one of them died, friends. Everyone except this man and Joshua. And this man, apparently, he found the fountain of youth. He says, I'm just as strong as I was that day. And you remember, he went in the land and he brought back a minority report. And you'll recall that crowd when they saw the giants in the land. They wanted to return to Egypt. They wanted to go back to slavery, brickyards, the lash of the taskmaster, chains and shackles, groaning under burdens, and no straw to make brick. And the Lord Jesus, you remember, said, if a man put his hand to the plow, let him keep going and take up your bed and walk. 
And the Puritan said, the reason the Lord said that, you're to make no arrangement for a relapse. And so this man Caleb said, let's go into the land. That's what we were called to do. You know, this man now has been out in the wilderness 40 years. And that wilderness killed off those other folk. But it didn't hurt this man at all. In fact, he found it as a very healthy place to be. Now, I suppose that many a day that somebody would come up to Caleb and says, Oh, brother Caleb, isn't it terrible out here in this wilderness? Oh, it's so hot today. It is terrible. It looks like God would be nicer to us than he's been. It looks like he'd do something for us. Oh, brother Caleb, isn't it terrible? And brother Caleb would say, I hadn't noticed it. You mean you hadn't noticed it's so hot today? Well, he says, we just well face up the facts. I noticed the thermometer's 118 today, pretty warm. But he said, you know what I was thinking? He said, I was thinking about those grapes of Eschol that I saw. And I was thinking about that city of Hebron. My, our father Abraham liked that place. He moved down there. I like that place. I want that place. And that's where I'm going. And this man out in the desert, he was able to think of the future. He had a great hope. And, you know, he didn't age at all out there. But the rest of the crowd, they died off. My friend, you want to lengthen your life? You want to be healthy? Let me give you a good formula, Caleb's formula. We're down here in a world that's filled with, oh, I tell you, there are a lot of things you can complain about, and I do my share of it. But the interesting thing is, what about your hope today? What about the future? Why, this man for 40 years in that wilderness was enjoying all the spiritual blessings that was his in Christ. And by the way, are you enjoying all the spiritual blessings that God has for you today? You say, oh, I'm having trouble. It's terrible. Yes, I grant you. I get letters from people really in trouble. My heart goes out to them. But I always think of the... Negro, years ago in the South, when he got up to give a testimony, he says, my favorite verse in the Bible is, it came to pass. Everybody looked puzzled, and the preacher asked him, so what do you mean, came to pass? He says, you know, the reason I like that verse is because when I get into trouble and problems come to me, he said, I just turned to that, it came to pass, and I know that my trouble and my problems, they've just come to pass, and they're going to pass away before long, and I won't have them much longer. Oh, my friend today, to have that attitude toward life, that's a Christian attitude, a hope in this life, and we need that today. Now, notice what he says. He says, Now, therefore, give me this mountain whereof the Lord spake in that day, for thou heardest in that day how the Anakims, they were giants, by the way, they were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. You see, he believed God, too. He's a man of faith. And Joshua blessed him and gave unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, Hebron, for an inheritance. Now, you'll recall when we were in Genesis that Abraham went there. It means communion. It's the place of fellowship. This man had enjoyed fellowship with God. Now he wants to go to that place. Notice, Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, unto this day 
because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Someday, friends, we'll be rewarded, and you'll not be rewarded about the great amount of work you've done for God. It won't be whether you were prominent or whether people heard about you or you were before the public. The important thing is, did you wholly follow the Lord? That's the important thing. Oh, that God's people would learn today the most important thing in this life is to wholly follow the Lord. Caleb, the man of God, he took Hebron. (laughs) There were giants there, but he said, that's what I want, the very best spot. Oh, that you and I today might press toward the mark for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, when we come here to the 15th chapter, we come to a place where we find actually the land now is divided. And that, again, is something I think very important for us to see, that the land is divided. And in this section, and I'm going to begin to hit some high points here, we find that from 15 to 19, the consignment of the land to the tribes of Israel. And you will notice that I'm just going to lift out certain things. We find that God had given to Caleb the city of Hebron, and he was a member of the tribe of Judah, and they also got something else. Verse 20, this is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Judah according to their families. In the uttermost cities of the tribe of the children of Judah toward the coast of Edom, southward. And then there are mentioned here some cities. You'll have difficulty finding most of them on your map. But they were way down in the Negev. Now, we think of Jerusalem being in the tribe of Judah, and it was, of course, and that that was the important thing. But you read the list of these places that are mentioned here, And friends, you're going to find out that a great many of them is using the common language of the street today. A lot of this was in the Thule's. A lot of this was way out yonder, but it was given to the tribe of Judah. Now we find in chapter 16 that Manasseh and Ephraim, they were the sons of Joseph. You will recall that the tribe of Levi was given no land, but twelve tribes were given land. And Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, his two sons, each one, is counted as a tribe. That was the tribe of Manasseh. That was the tribe of Ephraim. And Manasseh had some of their territory on the east bank of the Jordan River, which they shouldn't have stayed over there, but half of them did. But the other half that came over are now given a portion. And if you have my notes and outlines, you'll notice there that we have a map, and you'll notice that just about in the center of the land you have Ephraim and Manasseh, that is, on the west side of Jordan. But way to the north, actually, on part of the Sea of Galilee is Manasseh, and then Gad is in that area too, the Gadites. They were over on that wrong side. Now, I want to lift out an incident that's in this 17th chapter here. It's quite a remarkable instance, and it concerns the children of Joseph. And that means 
Ephraim and Manasseh, and of course Ephraim in particular here. Will you notice this? And the children of Joseph spoke unto Joshua, saying, Why hast thou given me but one lot and one portion to inherit, seeing I am a great people, far as much as the Lord hath blessed me hitherto? Now, they're complaining that they haven't been given a very large portion. And very frankly, they weren't given but about half of what Manasseh was given, the brother. And they were not given near as much as the tribe of Judah was given, or Simeon. And they were a great people, a great number of them, you see. Now, Joshua belonged to that tribe, by the way. And they come and they felt like, well, since Joshua's our man, why, he'll certainly take care of us. But it doesn't look like Joshua did that. And friends, if you travel up through that country, you find out it's very hilly. They call it mountainous and rugged. It's as rugged a country as I've ever traveled through anywhere. And this was what now was given to the tribe of Ephraim. And we find here, verse 15, And Joshua answered them, If thou be a great people, then get thee up to the wood country, and cut down for thyself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the giants, if Mount Ephraim be too narrow for thee. Well, you notice two things. First is that if you traveled in that country today, there's no wood. Those hills are about as bare as they are in California. That is, in southern California. There's no trees there. What happened? Well, the enemies that came into that country down through the centuries absolutely denuded the hills of trees. As you know, there's a great campaign in Israel today to plant trees in that country. When I was over there, I planted five trees. I planted one for myself, one for my wife, one for my daughter, one for the church I served, and one for a Jewish friend. I planted five trees over there because trees will grow there. That land was covered with them. And in Christ's day, why, the Mount of Olives was covered with trees. If it was just that little clump of trees that's there today, why, they wouldn't have had any trouble finding where he camped out with his followers. But you must remember that it was a regular jungle or forest that they went into in order to find him. And that was the reason that Judas went along to point out the place, as we've seen before. Now, I think that Joshua gives to his own tribe, the tribe of Ephraim, a very noble reply. He says, now, if you don't like what you've been given, well, you get up there in that area where the land hasn't been taken. And you must remember that it was said way back over in chapter 13 that there was much land. God said to Joshua, thou art old and stricken in years, there remaineth yet very much land to be taken. It wasn't possessed. And now he says, get up and if you want more territory, you go after it. There's so many Christians today complain about their lot and about the situation that they occupy in life. They feel like, I want to do more for God. I want to do this. I want to do the other thing. Well, my friend, why don't you lay hold of these spiritual possessions? 
Paul again says, blessed with all spiritual possessions. That's you, Christian friend. Now, verse 16, And the children of Joseph said, The hill's not enough for us. And all the Canaanites that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both they who are of Beth Sheen and her towns, and they who are of the valley of Jezreel. You see, they've got an excuse why they're not going and getting the land. Joshua spake unto the house of Joseph, even to Ephraim and to Manasseh, saying, Thou art a great people, hast great power. Thou shalt not have only one lot only. There's more land for you. But the mountain shall be thine, for it's wood, and thou shalt cut it down, and the outgoings of it shall be thine. For thou shalt drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots, though they be strong. Now, Joshua gives a noble reply here. He says, Ephraim, you don't like what you got? <laughs> Complaining? All right, get up there and lay hold of it. But remember, there are giants in the land. You'll have to work. <laughs> You'll have to fight. It's going to cost you something. And the reason today that there's so many Christians that are so beggarly, in fact, of the matter is, that's the problem in our churches today. And that's the problem of a great many preachers today. I heard the story years ago of a great preacher in New York City. And he was taking a vacation up in northern New York, in the northern part of the state. He was in a little country town. On Sunday, he went to church that morning. And there was a young preacher there. And lo and behold, a young preacher was preaching one of his published sermons. And he was almost giving it verbatim. And when the young man came out after the sermon, shaking hands at the door, while this preacher went by from New York, the famous preacher, and he shook hands with him and he said, Young man... I enjoyed that sermon today. How long did it take you to prepare it? And the young man said, Oh, it didn't take me about three hours. And this man says, That's strange. It took me eight hours. You see, friends, if you're going to lay hold of spiritual blessings, you're really going to have to work at it. A young man that I had in class many years ago, he went out into the active ministry, he was in a place about three years, and he came down to see me, and it was a distress call. He said, I'm in trouble. I didn't know what it was. And when he came in, he said, you know, Dr. McGee, I'm all preached out. I haven't anything else to preach. I don't know what to do. Been in the place three years. I said to him, how much time do you spend in the study each day? Well, he said, I don't spend very much time. I wouldn't be able to tell you, but it's not very much. I said, how much time do you spend preparing a sermon? Oh, he said, maybe an hour. I said, just an hour? Yes. Well, I said to him, that's the reason that you run out. That's the reason you're through. He said then to me, how long do you spend preparing a message? And you've been at it now for some time. And I said, yes. I said, some of it's actually a review. But I said, I never preach a sermon that I don't spend eight hours, and some of them I've spent as much as 20 hours. Now, it may not look like it when you listen to them, but that's the time that I spent in getting up. My friend, I want to say to you today that 
If you're going to lay hold of spiritual possessions, as Joshua said to Ephraim, you don't like what you got? You run out of sermons? You can't go any longer? And you're drawing from somebody else? Then for goodness sakes, move out and lay hold of these great spiritual blessings that are yours. But remember, there's an enemy there. There are giants in the land. Satan will trip you if he can. And it's going to require hard work. There's no explanation for that. I had a professor in school. One fellow came in one day. He was complaining about a book that we had to read, outside reading. And he says, Doctor, it's as dry as dust. And the professor said, Well, dampen it with a little of the sweat of your brow. (laughs) That'll make it come alive. May I say to you, this is a great argument for hard work, by the way. Joshua says to his own tribe Ephraim, Don't come around me complaining. You go up there and get it. The land's there for you, but you're going to have to work at it. I think this is a marvelous thing here. This is the way you're to do it. You're going to have to drive them out. God will not arbitrarily give you the land. Every place that the sole of your foot shall stand upon, that's yours, God says. And this is a marvelous thing. Oh, today, how many of us are so poor spiritually? Why? We just didn't get up and walk and tread on the land, friends. We didn't lay hold of spiritual blessings. Now, in chapter 18, we read here, "...and the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there, and the land was subdivided before them." Now, Shiloh was the place that they came to when they crossed over, you will recall. And it actually is a very famous place, but it was not to be the permanent place to begin with. It was not in the center of the land. And the place that God would choose would be through David, which would be Jerusalem, and that would be the place that would be chosen later on, but not Shiloh. Actually, it's to be a temporary place. And later on, we'll find out that this is the place that Samuel, he commuted all over the place from Shiloh, by the way. But when you come to David, you will find out that the capital is moved to the center of the land. And you will find also at that time that Jerusalem, the city, the Mount of David, Mount Zion, That was David's favorite spot where he built his capital. That's where he was. So that actually Shiloh now becomes the temporary place for the tabernacle. And here is where the children of Israel are to come to. Now, he gives to them a challenge, and we'll close with that because it's the same challenge that we've seen today. Let me read verses 2 and 3. And there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes, which had not yet received their inheritance. Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are ye slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you? And actually, these other tribes were just standing around with their hands in their pockets, and they were saying to Joshua, Well, what about this land? What are you going to give us? And Joshua said to them, How long are you going to stand around? Why don't you go up and possess your land? 
You've been given a certain area, and that was marked out, and you'd go up and possess that. How long will you wait? And that is the challenge. I think that God is giving to us today, many of us, why are you so slack to go and to possess the land God's given you? He's made over to you all spiritual blessings. He has been good to you. Oh, how today so many of us can thank God for his grace, his love, his goodness, and his mercy. How wonderful he is. Why don't we move in and lay hold of all these things God has for us today? Believe me, these tribes now begin to move out, and they go out now to possess the land that God has given to them. We're going to see, by the way, next time, I think, two of the most remarkable things. For instance, the people of Israel, because this man Joshua has been busy leading them, they didn't give him an inheritance. And now they give him the part that he wants. And we're going to see where he chose. Quite interesting. You see, they thought of their leader. I think it's tragic today to see so many men in God's service, and we're living in this technical age, and they'll serve a church for years. And then the church makes no arrangement for a pension for them when these cold-blooded business corporations today, they take care of that sort of thing. And God's people do not. Then we're going to see that altar that was built that divided the people. We'll take that up next time. Now, friends, we're in this section of dividing the land. In the book of Joshua, the wars are over for the most part, and now the land is divided. And chapter 19 is part of the consignment of the lands to the tribes of Israel. This is the last chapter of this particular section of the consignment of the land. We have chapters 15 through 19. And actually, we saw that the tribe of Judah was given a special preference because it was the kingly tribe, and it will be in that tribe in the center of the land that the king will choose actually the place that will be the capital, both the political capital and the religious capital of the nation. And as we well know, that became Jerusalem, and it was David who made the choice. Now, in chapter 19, we see the second lot came forth to Simeon, even for the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families. And their inheritance was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. And they had in their inheritance Beersheba, and Sheba, and Moladah, and if you would get your map and look up these places, some of them are a little hard to locate, you'll find that this was the extreme south of the land. Dan was way up in the north, and Simeon was way in the south, and Beersheba was just about to jump in off place. And that's what it is today. And they went all the way, and I know that there have been some folk that kid me a great deal because I used the expression all the way from Dan to Beersheba. Well, that encompasses, of course, the whole land, and that means it would cover any subject. So, the chapter 19, 
why we have that given. And it reveals how much in detail God gave concerning these people and the land. The land and the people go together. And not only did he give the nation Israel this land, here the land of Canaan, and it was much larger than that as we've seen, but now they possess the land of Canaan. And God gives not only the land to them, but he gives a particular area to a particular tribe. Simeon is in the extreme south. Judah is next. And the very interesting thing is here, it reveals that he gave to each family in each tribe a particular section. Now, that is important. So that God was concerned about each individual and his possessions. This is remarkable. Remarkable for many different ways, but especially it has a lesson for us today. God is concerned about your personal, private life. And for him, it's not personal or private. He knows you like a book. This idea today, a man said to me, was a rather godless neighbor. He said, I want to get off out in the desert to myself where I can get away from everybody. Well, we all have that desire to get away from other people. But I reminded him, and I don't think he appreciated it, but I reminded him he wasn't going to get away from God. I said, you can't run away from him, brother. He'll be right out there in the desert waiting for you. He knows us. We talk about getting away, and it's wonderful to get away like that with the Lord. You remember the Lord Jesus when he was here. He retired many times to a desert place to pray, and that's where he would take his disciples. Now, I think I probably should call attention here as they mention the other tribes to this man Joshua. We said we were going to mention that. Now, you would think that Joshua, and by the way, he belonged to the tribe of Ephraim, and there's some very choice land up in that area. I thought when I was in that land that the most picturesque part of the land of Israel today is in that particular area that was given to Ephraim. It's up there where you have Mount Ebal and Gerizim. It's where the woman at the well was. It, it became Samaria later on. It's very beautiful, very picturesque country. And there's some spots that are very delightful. Now, you would think that when they're going to give Joshua a place in the land, that all the people would say, Brother Joshua, you have led us, and you've been God's man for us, and we are here because you are the one that God chose to lead. And you just pick out any spot you want, and it'll be yours. But that's not what happened. Joshua made the choice, and do you notice what he chose? Verse 49 of chapter 19, "...when they had made an end of dividing the land for inheritance by their coasts, the children of Israel gave an inheritance to Joshua, the son of Nun, among them. According to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked, even Timnath-Serah in Mount Ephraim, and he built the city and dwelt therein. And you know what Timnath-Serah is? A barren place. I think probably chose one of the worst spots that could have been chosen. Does that remind you of anyone else that we have been talking about in the Old Testament? 
You remember when Abraham and Lot returned back from the land of Egypt? It was Abraham that said to Lot, Now you pick any section you want, and I'll take what's left. It's amazing to see how big these men are, and yet they're sinful men, weak men like we are today. And yet when the chips are down, as the saying goes, this is what these men will do. They reveal that they are big men. They reveal that there is something, even in their fallen human nature, that makes them maybe a little different than the selfishness of the book of humanity. This man, Joshua, took Timnath Sirah. What a place that he took. It would be like taking the backside of the desert where Moses went to when he left the land of Egypt forced to flee. This is certainly a revelation of the character of this man Joshua. And it reveals the people. They were perfectly satisfied to let this man of God have that small portion and such a barren place, by the way. What a message is here. And it's told here in the most casual way.